1: you read with Tim Montgomery.
2: Well, it's been a long time since we've had a Did You Read podcast, but we are now back after the summer, and it's been an eventful summer in politics with reshuffles and party conferences. So to judge the status and the health and the strength of our three, or is it four, party political leaders in Britain, I'm joined by Phil Collins, the chief leader writer of The Times, and two of our regular columnists, Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Can we start off with you, uh, Rachel, please, and talk about David Cameron in many ways he 's in a very strong position. his party seems more united behind him than for some time. The economy seems to be recovering. he still has his ideal labor opponent in the ed balls Ed Miliband leadership team, but He's still behind in the opinion polls. He still has this challenge of the electoral geography with UKIP having split the right-wing vote. How do you see his status, particularly after the reshuffle that he's just uh, conducted? And you've written about for Tuesday's Times.
3: The summer seemed to go very well for Cameron. The economy seemed to be doing well. As you say, his party was uniting behind him. But there's still this kind of fatal flaw potentially that he has, which is uh, the Tories seen as out of touch with ordinary people. Are they still the sort of posh boys who don't know the price of milk or bread? Um, And the reshuffle uh, this week was designed to try and address that. So we saw the promotion of lots more women, People particularly from Midlands and the North, some ethnic minority ministers, and it was designed to send a message that we are, you know, just like you, ordinary people, you know, from all parts of the country, men, women, all
2: they were actually briefing people. They were this is absolutely
3: explicit. I spoke to someone from number ten as the ministers were walking up. Downing Street to get their jobs. And I was told this is about women and Midlands and Northern MPs showing that we're in touch and, you know, putting people in a position to go into the cabinet in time for the general election.
2: As our representative, Phil, of the North here at the time, are you impressed with this uh, reshuffle focus or is it just entirely
1: cosmetic? Well, they've done what they can do, but what they can do isn't very much. I uh, think some good people have been promoted and, and uh, Sajid Javid, for instance, I think is a very impressive person to be financial secretary to the Treasury and will go a lot further. So they've done what they can do. But the real fundamental question is that the, the reason the north struggles – Uh, with the Conservatives, partly historical, partly the the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. But in more recent times, if your main mission as a government is to cut back uh, government spending, then those towns have become very heavily, excessively reliant on government spending. So inevitably the burden is gonna fall the most in the North. That's not deliberate anti-Northern policy. It's just the inevitable consequence of cutting back public spending. And faced with that fundamental fact, of politics it 's very difficult to see how the Conservatives win in the north of England, notwithstanding a reshuffle, which is fine. but reshuffles very rarely change the real landscape of politics, and I doubt this one will either
2: because you wrote uh, your last column, you talked about two nations in Britain, and you talked about a Conservative Party, David Cameron, that wanted to reach out, but just its message couldn 't. Travel and there seemed to be implication there that it wasn't just about state spending and manufacturing and structural, but in the same way that the Tory brand has become completely toxic and unacceptable in Scotland, there was a danger of that happening, or in parts of the North as well. Do, 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 is that what you meant?
1: Yes, that's a very good summary. That, that is that is what I meant. I think there's a real danger in the urban Northern uh, places that, that voting Tory becomes completely countercultural. That the Conservatives have no councillors at all in Manchester to Newcastle, Sheffield or Liverpool. And they, these are huge metropolises for, for the Tories not to have any representation at all. And I think David Cameron is not a great leader to take that message. He doesn't look and sound like the Conservative Party that will do well in the north of England. And Not since Margaret Thatcher really have had the Conservatives had a transformative leader. I also said, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, that the same is true of the Labour Party, which is equally bedded into its heartlands and and will struggle to break through in the south of England.
2: In David Cameron's party conference speech, there was quite a lot of Margaret Thatcher in tribute direct tributes to her from him, and also I think a lot of Thatcherite emphasis on enterprise and job creation. Why do you think David Cameron was so focused on that message? Is it because he needs to win the loyalty? of his party or is he trying to set the next election up in a very traditional way of Conservative, the party of enterprise and Labour, the party of the state?
4: I think David Cameron's main issue at the moment is trying to steady the boat. That's what he really wants to do. He thinks the economy's working. He thinks they're about to get into port, and He thinks that if they start rocking the boat, it's all going to go wrong. And you can see that with his reshuffle, which was incredibly bland, actually, and um, very light and it, was, you know, it wasn't the night of the, the long knives as everyone always says. It was the sort of night of the long drives, about as far as anyone could take it, which was sort of get rid of the posh people. But there weren't many that went. Richard Benyon was the only one. And I think that his main preoccupation at the moment is to try and do as little as possible. So I think the speech actually said very little and had very little on policy. Do
2: you think there'll be a bigger reshuffle before the election? We've got 18 months to go until the Not country sure. votes.
1: I think that theme, Tim, though, that you began with there of enterprise on the one hand and the state on the other, will be, in a way, one of the themes of the general election. I think in the conference season, we've seen some of the election themes prefigured. And very clearly, the Conservatives are going to run quite hard on Labour can't be trusted with the economy. It's been very difficult, but we've come through it. Don't give the keys back to those people who crashed the car. And to some extent, you might think Ed Miliband walked into that with his own speech. So the lines are quite clearly drawn and the the two parties are further apart now than they've been for quite some years, I think. That
2: seems a good moment to turn our attention to Ed Miliband because looking back, he did have a really bad summer. We had, I think, through most of um, July and August, there was a drip, drip, drip of Labour figures questioning Labour strategy. We had the opinion polls tighten very considerably. And then there was that Syria vote that some people reacted very badly to, but at the same time it seemed to solidify his support in the party. And then he did this very populist speech um, at his Brighton conference where he focused on energy prices. Is he completely safe in the Labour Party now? He is going to be the Labour leader at the next general election. And is the sign that people were like Liam Byrne, Stephen Twigg, Jim Murphy, who were moved down in the reshuffle, the fact that they didn't return to the backbenches, they stayed on the front bench even with lesser jobs, is a sign that actually they think they could be in ministerial office in eighteen months' time? They, the confidence levels in the Labour Party are higher than perhaps many of us thought. Who'd like so to go first, Rachel I think Sylvester? I think
3: I don't think anybody's suggesting that he could go. But what's interesting is, as Alice said, if David Cameron is not rocking the boat, Ed Miliband's decided to roll the dice, if you like, to mix the metaphors, and he's taking more and more risks, which may or may not pay off, I think, but something like the sort of price-fixing promise on um, energy. it's It may not be kind of sensible economics. It may not be sort of good strategically for the Labour Party in a way, but it's popular. And he's decided to sort of take a gamble and, you know, throw the dice and see whether it pays off. And I think the Tories are complacent if they think that it it won't work, if they assume that the sort of voters will see through it, because they might not.
4: I don't think the Tories are actually that complacent at the moment. I think they're quite nervous in number 10, because one of the big problems with Ed Miliband was that he was seen as incredibly weak and indecisive. And actually what they're worried about now is this makes him look more decisive. Whatever you say about him now, he is taking charge and he is leading And he, with his argument with the Daily Mail and his views on energy. He looks more and more... And
2: also his latest reshuffle. A lot of the headlines in the papers the, describe it as he was taking charge of his team.
4: And also he, he led the news, actually. It was the, the shadow cabinet's reshuffle rather than the cabinet reshuffle, which was the news, which was in some ways extraordinary because he, he has become much more of a player. And I think that probably makes him nervous
1: can I just um, dissent from this Ed Miliband loving as someone who generally prefers him when he's silent I thought he had a very good summer um, it was it's since he came back that I think things have gone off a cliff it's interesting at the moment that in private both the main parties are bleeding woe into our ears they, no, nobody thinks they can win so the out feeling of Labour Party conference was one of confidence they 're going to win, and I think the fact that people are sticking around on the front bench mean does mean they think they well might, but you talk to them in private and you scratch beneath the surface a bit and they think the labor support is very soft, and they 're very worried that with UKIP scoring eleven twelve percent at the moment in the polls that they still only have a lead of four or five percent, and there 's a part of them that knows that 's not good enough. Mm. By the same token, the Conservatives I know don't think they can win either. But and somebody has to be wrong. And my own view is that I don't think the conference season and the reshufflers will have done a great deal for Ed Miliband because I think the view of Ed Miliband had already settled. I think I think he's over with with the British people. I think they've rumbled him. And I think that if we we look forward, there'll be a moment when people take a look and think, "Are you prime ministerial material?" No.
2: That's an incredibly sort of damning judgment in a way, Phil, and I don't think I disagree with it. If you look at who should be best prime minister when opinion pollsters asked that question, when he first became Labour leader, about 22% said that, and it's not very... Barely moved.
0: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: So it's not my judgment as such, it's my reading of the the polling data. Those Important judgments on whether we want you to be prime minister and, crucially, whether we think the economy is saved in your hands have hardly moved. So we've had a terrible economic time and yet Labour are 18 points behind on the economy.
3: But oh, you wrote a column, didn't Rachel you Sylvester. he could be the accidental prime minister? And I think there is something in that that David Cameron still hasn't dealt with the Tory party's problems, he, you know, all the kind of rebranding and decontamination that they started when he first became leader has basically been shelved. And it, 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 if, um, you know, people don't really feel that the Tories are on their side, Labour might, might slip in, actually. I, I, that's true, that's
1: true. And in fact, just recently, I wrote that there are Labour ministers now, former Labour ministers, who have moved from fearing that they're going to lose to fearing <laughs> that they're going to win. Yes. For <laughs> precisely that reason, the electoral system now isn't working. For four-party politics, and it, it's quite possible that Labour could win, or at least be the largest single party, on a really quite it small percentage of the vote. It, yeah, yeah. I think Alice must Thompson. Be
4: why um, the Liberal Democrats are so relaxed in some ways? Because actually, when you look at it, you think you know they're doing appallingly in the polls, and they couldn't be doing any worse, really. And yet there was smiling Nick Clegg, looked totally confident. He hasn't had any leadership challenge at all he seems I mean, he's got more smug actually over the years and i think that's partly because he thinks there's going to be a coalition you can't see right. not being in power again and he you know and he loves these reshuffles just because he can use his power and he thinks you know he'd quite like to do that again well, for like well, a few years. well
2: let's turn our focus to nick clegg and the liberal democrats staying with you alice um nick clegg did seem by all accounts to have a reasonably successful party conference and summer i um, partly because I think Vince Cable is now no longer seen as the credible leader in waiting that he was. Nick Clegg seems to have no real challenge to his, his leadership. Um, but they are still flat on their backs in the opinion polls. Our belief that they are in a good place is simply because we can't see Labour or the Conservatives winning and Nick Clegg will hold the balance of power and his message that he would humanise a Conservative government and make a Labour government a little bit more respectable and grown up is quite a simple understandable message is that why we think the liberal democrats are in an okay place
4: i think it is i mean you look at miriam doing her interview today she seems very calm and relaxed too they all feel that they're going to be there for another few years and actually, it's quite a fun place to be, being a kingmaker and being able to say, you know, not having to come up with that much of your own. You have a few policies that you trade and swap around. They love talking about the trades they've done and what, you yeah. you know, what, you know, their power that they're wielding. And they like all the trinkets and they like the cars and they like everything like that. They're not going to give it up very easily. But actually, they know they're never going to be a pound. They don't actually need very many seats at the next election to be that kingmaker. That's 30, the problem.
2: 40. Mm. So they could lose so they a don't, third or so yeah. of their seats and still be the kingmakers. Yeah. Phil Collins. And there's
1: one more reason to, that for their optimism, which is not entirely misplaced, which is that in the local elections recently, even though on the national poll they did awfully, in places where they hold the sitting MP, they came first. Mm. So in their places, which are the only places they're going to fight in the next election, they're still doing quite well. And reports are coming back from Labour people in fights they've got against Lib Dems. We're saying these are difficult fights. The Liberal Democrats are pretty well embedded in certain places. Mm. So I think their vote's about to become more efficient which is to say there'll be fewer people voting Lib Dem. But there won't be that many losses of MPs. There will be some. They're not going to retain all of them. But I don't think it'll be quite the wipeout that has been assumed for a while. And what also Nick right, Sylvester.
3: Is, he's, he's now the one remaining centrist, if you like. David Cameron and Ed Miliband have both reverted more to their sort of traditional party positions. And he has, if you know, stayed firm on the centre ground, which is, you know, traditionally where votes are won. Um, and I think, you know, you think of the ECD by-election where the Tories tried to chase after UKIP, Labour was nowhere, and the Lib Dems won.
1: I think it, it's, it's clear now that for out of the conference season, all three leaders are more secure in their positions than they were perhaps six months ago. I mean, I agree with Rachel yeah. that the, any incipient threat to Ed Miliband has has disappeared. David Cameron, as you said, Tim, uh, is in a much better position with his party, and so is Nick Clegg, and and rivals have have slowly dropped away. Uh,
2: Rachel Sylvester, if we're right around this table and a hung parliament is again very likely. David Cameron spends a lot of time in close cooperation with the Liberal Democrats and Nick Clegg. Is the Labour Party doing enough to make overtures to the Liberal Democrats because there's still a lot of brickbats being thrown at at the Liberal Democrats from the Labour front bench and could they be too ambitious for a majority and in the end have endangered their chances of of forming an alliance with the Liberal Democrats? The sensible
3: people around Ed Miliband are realising this actually and they are starting to think in terms of you know they may have to form a coalition with Liberal Democrats and I think there are overtures being made privately behind the scenes but I think there are still some very senior tribalists, you know, Ed Balls is one of them, who would find it very difficult particularly to go into coalition with Nick Clegg who they see as the sort of enemy and I think that there's a potential problem that some of these Labour people will say, oh, we'll we'll do a deal with Lib Dems but not if Nick Clegg's the leader Mm -hmm. and you can't really have one party telling
4: another party who their leader should be. Also, there are quite a lot of other ones they're not going to get on with either, like right? Danny Alexander or David Laws, who basically almost Tories now. I mean they get on so well with their opposition. They're, they're sort of well, part opposition, but really they're friends now. I mean Danny Alexander and George Osborne are very close. And David Laws is exactly the same agenda really now as Michael Dove. It's
1: interesting the account of the last coalition negotiations Andrew Adonis has in his book. Um, Andrew was part of the Labour team and he is convinced, and I think he's wrong about this, that the reason that there was a Tory-Liberal coalition was because of the ideological affinity between David Cameron and Nick Clegg. But actually it was the electoral arithmetic which governed that and it wasn't Nick Clegg's choice. But that's Andrew's view. He thinks a Labour-Liberal coalition was possible and it was it didn't happen principally because Nick Clegg is a closet Tory. Now, if even Andrew Adonis thinks that, and he's <laughs> one of the most enlightened and liberal members of the Labour Party, I think the hostility towards the Lib Dems that Rachel alluded to is still a, a serious factor. But they're going to have to grow up about it, because yeah. it's unlikely they can win on their own. And they're going to have to deal with the Liberal Democrats as they are.
2: I still think, though, that there are many reasons in the next Parliament why a Lib Lab pact would be more sensible for the Liberal Democrats. In a sense, a lot of things they wanted to do with the Conservatives have been done, whereas things like a mansion tax, green taxes, Europe, there's more things now that a Lib Lab project could take forward. And so I think there will be a lot of uh, hunger inside the Liberal Democrat Party to take forward that uh, Lib Lab pact. But I'm not going to let any of you respond to that because we're nearly out of time and I want to finish on the fourth party leader. We're not quite in a three-party system anymore. We have UKIP particularly nipping at the heels of the Conservatives. And uh, Alice, start with you on this one. We had that um, Jeffrey Bloom incident on the edge of the UKIP conference, but no discernible impact on UKIP's or Nigel Farage's poll ratings. We in Westminster may have thought it was an attractive incident, but the anti-politics flavour of UKIP seems they're almost uh, above any of the normal criteria that would hurt a political party.
4: Well, I think that's the thing. They're not being scrutinised, really, are they? Because we don't think they're serious in the same way they Lib Dems never scrutinised before and actually then had quite a lot of casualties when they first came into government because people did stop looking through their records. And I think you've got the European elections coming up, so they probably will have more scrutiny and more blooms, basically, bloomers. You can I mean, it's going to be... But,
2: but does it matter? Is the only person that really matters in UKIP, Nigel Farage, as long as he has this sort of cheeky, chappy, anti-politics... Uh, Message: the UKIP will continue to do well enough to hurt the Tories in every marginal
1: seat? They'll do well enough until it matters. They'll do well in the European elections precisely because nobody thinks European elections matter at all. Apart from UKIP, of course, you think they matter more than anything else in the world. But when it comes to a general election, I still think that that vote, which might be 13% in a European election, will fall. Now, the question is, does it fall enough for the Conservatives. Because even if it remains at 6 or 7%, that's, that's far too much for the Conservatives. Yeah. So that will be very painful for the Tories in marginal seats. So the Tories have to contain UKIP. And that's, that's the election, in my view. That's, yeah. the, that's the absolute core of the general election, is can the Conservatives win back votes, which are currently in the UKIP camp. So we are in four-party politics at the moment. No question about it. So it's about
2: the Labour taking left-wing votes from the Liberal Democrats and how many UKIP voters the Conservatives can win back will probably determine the outcome of the next... Election. Do you essentially buy that analysis, I Rachel? Do, there's also
3: a paradox, because by trying to win back the UKIP voters, if the Tories end up going too far to the right, they'll alienate the sort of centrist voters who they also need to really secure a majority. Likewise for Labour, if they go too far to the left, they will alienate those centrist voters. So I think although the, the UKIP is affecting, distorting politics, if you like, in the end it will come back to the sort of basic you know who who looks like the most sensible government that people can
2: trust well I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, Phil Collins for joining me. We will be back next week for another edition of the Did You Read podcast. You can read and access some of the articles that we've been discussing on the uh, Comment Central blog on the Times opinion page. And I'd just like to thank Alex Jakes for producing this podcast, the final time he will be producing this podcast. Thanks for listening and hopefully see you next week.